Welcome to Holistic History, The Quest for King Arthur. My name is Jim Frost, and this is Episode 9. In this episode, I'm going to begin to address an issue I raised back in Episode 1 when I said I do not agree with the accepted reconstruction of the political system of the Britons in the 5th and 6th centuries. This topic is so complex that I will cover it in two episodes. The accepted reconstruction is that the Britons were politically divided into separate kingdoms, and a ruler who could exert authority over at least some of the other kings was what historians call a high king, and they only had a high king when one could dominate, so there were times when there was no high king. I believe that these men were not high kings, but rulers of a central government. It was a weak government plagued by powerful nobles with their own agendas, and the succession was not determined by inheritance. It was probably a similar system to the Romans. In the Roman system, the emperor had to gain the support of the army and the approval of the senate. For our purposes, this would mean two things. First, many of the rulers would have been succeeded by men who were not related to them. Second, the system was inherently unstable, with civil wars and coups as rival candidates vied with one another for dominance. I started having problems with the accepted reconstruction fairly early on, while still doing an overview of events from the 5th and 6th centuries, before looking into them in, in detail. When I got to the period just after Arthur, the next two high kings were Melgwyn and his son Run, who ruled Gwyneth in northern Wales. Melgwyn was remembered as having been a powerful ruler. Run was not so strong, but was still fairly impressive. The only thing we know of Run's reign is that he was killed while waging war against Altklat and Managarathin. These were the two most northerly of the kingdoms of the Britons. The town of Altklat is now Dunbarton, while Edinburgh was in Managarathin, so they were in what is now Scotland. A look at a map shows a significant amount of territory between southern Scotland and northern Wales. If the intervening territory was taken up with independent kingdoms, as most people believe, then how could they have waged war on each other? Gwynedd was a very important kingdom in medieval Wales. The flag of Wales originated as the flag of Gwynedd, and the bishop of Gwynedd was seen as the head of the Welsh church. Even so, Gwynedd had a difficult time dominating Wales, and for much of the period, it could not do so. For much of medieval history, Wales did not have a high king, and even when it did, he did not necessarily come from Gwynedd. In the 5th and 6th centuries, they were not the Welsh yet, they were still the Britons. Even if we were to give the Anglo-Saxons as much territory as they could possibly have conquered, Gwynedd would have to have dominated all of, or at least most of, all the rest of Wales, roughly half of what is now southern England, and all of northern England, for about 60 years. Gwynedd could not have dominated anywhere near that much territory for 60 seconds. If it could have, it would have had no trouble at all in dominating Wales alone, and would almost certainly have united Wales into one kingdom. There is no evidence that medieval Gwynedd was weaker than post-Roman Gwynedd. Quite the contrary. During the reign of Rhodri the Great, from 844 to 878, Gwynedd annexed several of its neighbours, including Powys, which had been a fairly significant kingdom in its own right. So if Gwynedd became stronger, why did its influence decline? Everyone says the Britons had an unusually large number of high kings, and this is explained by saying that some of these men only had authority over the south. There is very little evidence to support that contention. Someone just made that up, and everyone else went along with it because it made the accepted reconstruction work. But I don't work that way. I examine as many different possible answers as I can think of, and then try to determine which one is most likely to be true. I concluded that there was enough evidence to investigate the idea that the Britons had a completely different political system, a system that collapsed because of the twin pressure of powerful nobles with their own agendas and the Anglo-Saxon wars, pressures from within and without. I have to admit, I couldn't figure it out until I read The Age of Arthur by John Morse, which was published in 1973. 
I have mentioned Morris before. He is the only other revisionist that I have encountered. He defended Vortigern and argued that the king was not a tyrant, which I agree with. He also called Gildas a liar, which is, of course, central to my own theory. My only real criticism of Morris is that he did not go far enough, but he was certainly on the right track. I am indebted to him because he pointed out certain things about Vortigern that I would have missed on my own. He also came up with what I believe is the right explanation for the political system. The problem is, he did not use enough evidence to make a convincing case. At first, I thought he was wrong, but the more I looked into it, the more convinced I became that he was right. He said it was a central government, but did not explain how he thought it operated. He only made three points. First, not all of these men used the title of king. Second, like any other word, the meaning of the word king could change. Third, instead of looking at what the Welsh did in later centuries and projecting it back, we should look at the situation in late Roman Britain and move that forward. It is true that not all these men use the title of king. Magistrate is the only title we have for the rulers of Element, while the rulers of Diffid used Roman military ranks. As for the meaning of the word king changing, that is also true. Morris argued that it was a vague term for any high-ranking noble or chieftain. Now let us consider the term sub-king. The official definition of a sub-king, as used by historians, is a man who had the title of king but did not rule his own kingdom. He usually ruled a province in someone, other, someone else's kingdom. In other words, he was a noble with the title of king, a man who in later centuries would have had a title like duke or earl, but in post-Roman Britain had the title of king. The only evidence we have that Britain was divided into different kingdoms is that it had kings. But if king did not necessarily mean rule of a kingdom, then that evidence is inconclusive. In plain words, Morris's idea is that Western Europe was experiencing significant social and political changes that led to the invention of kingdoms. Western Europe had never had kingdoms before. It had had city-states, the Roman Empire, and tribal communities. So far, what I'm saying is not new. What is new is the argument that they did not invent a new title for the man at the top of the system. What they really did was take a title they already had and change the meaning. I would argue that the Britons changed the meaning more than once. The Romans had never thoroughly Latinized the Britons. Late Roman Britain was divided into four provinces. Britannia Prima in the west and Britannia Secunda in the north had Roman enclaves but were dominantly tribal and governed by chieftains who were answerable to Roman officials. The accepted idea is that we do not know what title they used for those chieftains. The Britons divided into different kingdoms after becoming independent in 410. They had two different titles for king, Vor and Rix, which they used interchangeably, but Vor was more common. But doesn't it seem odd that the Britons supposedly had not one, but two titles that meant ruler of a kingdom when they had never lived in kingdoms? I believe Vor and Rix originally meant chieftain, but transitioned to mean noble after Britain gained its independence, and eventually came to mean king, but only after the collapse of the central government. So to sum up, the only evidence to support the idea of high kingship is ambiguous linguistics and the assumption that what they did later was the same as what they had done when they became independent, while John Morris's theory of a central government has good evidence to support it. Tune in next time while I will continue making arguments in favor of the central government and tie it not only to Arthur, but to the legend of the sword and the stone. This has been Holistic History, The Quest for King Arthur. I am Jim Frost. Until next time, I hope you stay safe.